0: All right, First Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to make our way this morning. So if you want to take out your Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, there are some located in the seat pockets in front of you. So First Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to be headed. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul planted this church in Acts chapter 17. And so as Paul has planted the church, he has just left the area of Philippi. He was ran out of that town. He then arrives in Thessalonica. It was a a burgeoning, a growing city there on the Aegean Sea, some 200,000 people. And as Paul arrives, he begins to share the word of God with both Jews and Gentiles alike. And the church takes off in short order. They see a tremendous response of the word of God being Uh, given, the gospel being shared. And yet, after just three weeks, again, uh, problems arise. Evil men from the marketplace is what we see in Acts 17, verse 5. They come up against the Apostle Paul, and they chase him and Silas out of town. And so after just three weeks, Paul is no doubt concerned about this young church. He is writing this letter from Corinth where he actually sent Timothy up to Thessalonica to see how are they doing. Are they doing okay? Are they surviving after just a few weeks of me getting to spend time with them? And he gets word back from Timothy that not only are they surviving, they are actually flourishing in the word of God. There's persecution, no doubt, for the church at Thessalonica, but they are doing tremendously well. And so Paul is writing this letter to them from Corinth with love to these Thessalonians. And as he writes to them, he wants to first of all, in the first three chapters, give them personal encouragement. Paul wants to encourage them as they are suffering through persecution, as they're going on their journey, and he reminds them of all the things God has done. And this is why last week I encouraged you to journal. It's, if you guys are, for you men out there, it's not a diary, because that's not manly, it's a journal. Right? I don't know the difference exactly other than the way we say it. But the reason I encourage you to journal is because uh, we forget. I don't know about you, I forget all the ways God answers prayer in my life. And so as I journal, it's a wonderful time to be able to go back and look through and remember the different ways that God was faithful to me. Even while my faith went up and down, he is faithful at every turn. And so Paul is giving them really an example of a journal. He's reminding them of the ways God has acted on their behalf in their lives. Now then with the last two chapters, what we're going to see is Paul gives them practical application in their life. In two major areas that he focuses on, first, on the return of Christ. They were confused. They had some confusion in the camp on Jesus' return. And so he gives them these couple bullet points, first of all, that his return is imminent that regardless of where you fall uh, theologically on the return of Christ or whatever your eschatology is, all those ologies, the fact that you cannot deny is that Jesus is coming back. Scripture is abundantly clear that he is going to return. And so in light of that, what Paul wants to communicate is that we were not appointed to wrath, right? So he encourages them in the midst of this that Jesus is coming back and that we were not appointed to wrath. And so in light of that, he then moves to his second topic, which is how are we to minister as a church? In knowing that this is the case, uh, here are two examples. We are to live with a sense of urgency and also anticipation. To be excited, anticipating the return of Christ. Some days, some weeks, I am way more excited about Jesus coming back than others. I'm thinking, Lord, come quick. I'm ready to go home. But then uh, we also are filled with the sense of urgency For those that we love and we care about that have not given their life over to Christ. And so, in light of knowing we are not going to be appointed to wrath, we live expectantly, but also with urgency to lead others to know the Lord. Now, all that leads us to chapter 2, verse 1. At the end of chapter 1, we see Paul giving them encouragement that God is going to deliver them from wrath. And then in chapter 2, he begins in verse 1 by saying, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And so Paul reminds them of what had taken place before they arrived in Thessalonica. That in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, what you find is the Apostle Paul, right before this, desired to go to Asia Minor. He wanted to go to what is modern day Turkey, but what we're told is the Holy Spirit forbid him. Paul wasn't able to go where he wanted to, but instead God directs him through a dream, a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, Please come here and share with us the gospel. And so Paul. Following this vision, he goes to Philippi, located in northern Greece, in Macedonia, and he does not find a man, but instead a woman. A group of ladies gathered along the riverbank, and the reason they gathered is because there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. It took at least 10 Jewish males to have a synagogue, which tells you there were not even enough Jewish believers to have a synagogue. Now, can can you imagine this as Paul, like you've been sent here by God and there's not even enough people to have a synagogue. Now I'm here along the riverbanks with a group of ladies, in particular a lady named Lydia, a seller of purple. But nonetheless, Paul shares the gospel message and all these women accept Jesus. They're baptized right there, the whole house of Lydia. They come to know Christ. Paul leaves from there, he then goes through the town of Philippi, and as he's going through the town with Silas of Philippi, a little girl begins to follow them. She's a slave girl who's actually got a demon possessing her. And as she follows after them, she cries out, these men are prophets of the most high God! These men are prophets of the most high God! Over and over and over again, for several days, we're told, this girl follows to the point where Paul is, quote, greatly annoyed. He'd had enough of this little girl falling along, calling after them. And so he turns around and he actually casts the demon out of this little girl. Now, this would lead some to wonder, why would Paul not want this little girl proclaiming a truth, which was these men were prophets of the Most High God. They were apostles. They were apostles. And yet, she was the wrong messenger. You understand that just because the message is correct the messenger has almost as much to do with it. And what you know about that is that the message can often be discredited when the messenger is not credit worthy. And so Paul casts out this demon from this little girl, which you'd think was a good thing, unless you were the owners of this little girl, who because of the demonic activity, she actually had premonitions and the ability to read palms and all the occultic activity that goes along with that, that they profited from financially from this little girl's hardship. And so they grab a hold of Paul and Silas, these owners of this little girl, and they throw them into jail. They beat them and throw them in prison where Paul and Silas are left most likely naked, sitting on a Philippian prison floor with their feet in stocks. And I shared with you when we went through Acts what your feet being in stocks would look like. They would take your legs and actually spread them to the point of total discomfort and then lock them into place while you're sitting on the floor. You can imagine the kind of pain in your hips and your back that this would create. And so what Paul and Silas did in the midst of all this is they praised the Lord. They began to praise the name of God in the middle of this. And so much so that the floors of the jail shook, the stocks fell off their feet, the prison doors flew open, and they were free to go. And yet they did not go. Why? Because the Philippian jailer, the man that was in charge of keeping them in prison, drew his sword and was getting ready to take his own life. Because what he knew is that in that Roman culture, if you lost a prisoner, you had to suffer whatever these prisoners had against them now got lumped on your head which meant he had a death sentence. And so he was getting ready to take his own life, and the apostle Paul called out and said, do no harm to yourself. Don't hurt yourself, because we're all still here and accounted for The man had to be blown away. I mean, the doors were open. They were free to go, and yet they didn't go anywhere. And so the Philippian jailer takes them into his house. He cleans them up, and Paul and Silas share the gospel, and this man's entire household is changed for all of eternity. All that to say that at every turn while Paul was in Philippi, what he's saying is we boldly shared the gospel. And as a result, the church in Philippi was actually born of a woman from Thyatira that sells purple, a formerly demon-possessed girl, and a Philippian jailer. I mean, these, this crew was not hanging out on Sunday afternoons except for Jesus. It sounds a lot like the assembly of the church, doesn't it? how God can take all different kinds of people with diverse backgrounds and understandings, and he brings them all together, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he unifies his body. True unity was happening. And so, as a result, the Apostle Paul continued to share with boldness the message of Jesus, the gospel message. Now, he continues in verse 3 and says... For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. How was it possible that Paul was able to share in Silas in the midst of all this persecution? Surely they would have quit. The reason they did not is because they were not seeking to please men, but instead to please God. Which leads me to my next point, and that is what you fear or who you fear is what you worship. This is true whether it is an employer, whether it is a spouse, whether it is a friend, whether it is the loss of someone you love, that what we fear is what we worship, which is why we are to fear God and God alone. Because the approval of man, Proverbs says, is a snare. It's a trap. You can never actually achieve man's approval. And so the encouragement here by Paul is to share boldly, seeking God's approval and his alone. And the question comes in our mind, like, how would I share? What am I going to say when I get the opportunity to share? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Turn to the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 1. And in this spot, Jeremiah is being called by God into ministry. He's called at a time with probably the greatest king after Hezekiah, or maybe even after David, in all the land, a guy named Josiah. He was actually doing a really good job running the nation of Israel, or nation of Judah, turning people back to the Lord. And yet Jeremiah, at probably the age of 20 years old, is called into ministry, and this is his response to the Lord. Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. I'm too young. You can't send me out there. And the Lord's response in verse 7, And the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. The question that we have is, Lord, what will I say in this situation? What will I do in this spot? But the question is flawed. It's not what will I say, it's what will you say. You may use me as the mouthpiece, but what do you want to communicate? What do you want to say? And what Paul would do over and over again, the reason he could have boldness, he could have confidence, is because what he was sharing was the word of God. He was just simply going into these areas and opening up God's Word. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he says, For I did not shun to teach you the whole counsel of God. I determined in my heart to teach you everything that God had to say. Not my opinion, not my own thoughts, but God's Word is what I am striving to teach. Now, oftentimes we get it in our head that I'm not intellectual enough. I don't have a good enough a background: I don't have a degree in, uh, from a, a, a tremendous cemetery, I mean seminary. I, I don't have all the learning that I need to have. And yet, for the Apostle Paul, what we learned when he arrived in Athens in the book of Acts, is he laid out what is perhaps the greatest message, at least by Bible scholars. You know, those guys are super smart the greatest message ever given to the Athenians there on the Acropolis or Mars Hill. It was perfect. He tied in Greek culture. He used biblical examples. He did this wonderful message that scholars all over the world go, that is the perfect message. But you know how many people accepted Jesus in Athens that day? None. Not a single one. Can you imagine the dejection I mean, here Paul, so cultured, so intellectual, he shared this perfect message. Surely someone was going to accept Jesus, and yet they did not. He then arrived in Corinth, where I believe, with that on his heart and with that on his mind, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. I'm done with the intellectual game. I'm done trying to be the smartest person in the room. I'm done trying to study everything there is to study to reach people culturally and right where they're at and meeting them in the right spot and doing all these games that happen in churches all over the place. When what God actually called Paul to do and to know is to teach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Doing for me, what I could not do for myself. He came, he gave his life for me. What will we speak? What will we say to people? Give them Jesus Christ and him crucified on your behalf. That's all the more complicated it needs to be. Now back to the text at hand. Verse 5, Paul says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness, Nor did we seek glory from other men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. What Paul says is we did not go coveting. The word covet means to want something that belongs to somebody else. We were satisfied with what the Lord gave us. Paul tells Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, look, we were satisfied where we're at. Why is that so very important? Well, because if you believe that everything you have has been a gift from God, that every possession you have, every bit of smarts you have, whatever moxie you've got going on, it was all given to you by God, then to desire something somebody else has, what you're saying is it's not good enough. God, I know you have a a perfect plan for my life, but it's not good enough for me. I want more, need more, have to have more. And so for that, As a quick reference, I know how you guys love the Old Testament stories of 1 Kings chapter 22. In this spot, there's a king named Jehoshaphat, and he is in charge of the two southern tribes of Judah. While in the north, the larger portion of the country, Israel, is being operated by King Ahab. The northern ten tribes all follow after him. You might remember Ahab from our stories of Elijah. He had an evil wife named Jezebel. Some of these things will start to ring bells. But for King Ahab, who's got the larger portion and the the larger following after him, he's got a little problem. You see the Syrian army has begun to come down into his country, begin to oppress him. And so while they've uh, at different times not been able to agree with Judah, he calls on little brother and he says, hey, why don't you come up and fight with us? And so Jehoshaphat, no doubt wanting to be included, probably where the term jumping Jehoshaphat comes from, he jumps into the situation and without really praying. And so he ends up spending time with talking with King Ahab, who's saying, come on with me, little brother, let's go into battle. And so they come up with an agreement, and arrangement, and what uh, Ahab tells Jehoshaphat in chapter 22 is, as we're getting ready to go into battle, I'm going to dress myself as one of the common men. I'm going to actually dress like a soldier. So why don't you take on all the kingly robes? You wear them all, you go out into battle like that, and I'll go undercover. Now you know in Jehoshaphat's mind what he was thinking, right? I've been the little brother, the little king. I could have control of the whole kingdom. I could look like for a short period of time, I am the man. And so he agrees to this plan. But what Jehoshaphat doesn't know is that the Syrian army had a battle plan of their own. And what they had told their troops was, go after the king with all your forces. Because if the king of Israel falls, the rest of the nation will scatter. And so Jehoshaphat goes into the battle With King Ahab, and all the arrows are pointed at him. I bring up all that story to say when we covet, when we desire to have something that God did not intend, what happens is we end up taking on arrows that were not meant for us. Arrows and spears and fiery darts come our way that God never intended for us to have to endure because He had what's best in mind for us. And so Jehoshaphat has to endure this as a result of covetousness. Now, back to the Apostle Paul. He's saying, we did not do that. We didn't covet. Instead, what I mentioned earlier, godliness with contentment is great gain. He was both godly and content. And the other thing he mentions is, we were straightforward. We were truthful with you. We came and we brought you the gospel, but we are also transparent, I have to say that transparency is a thing that has tremendous amounts of power. It is also incredibly terrifying. (laughs) As powerful as it is to be transparent with people, it is also terrifying. But as we were first coming back to church and God was getting a hold of my heart, it was the thing that God used as Pastor Mike sat on a swivel stool like this and he openly shared what God was up to in his life sometimes even painful, sometimes shocking at the amount of transparency you would have. But I can't tell you, as a guy that was in the audience trying to figure out where I stood with Jesus, how much that gripped my heart. And so what I attempt to do, week in and week out, is be as transparent with you as I possibly can. Sometimes it's terrifying. There's lots of things I don't want to talk about. And yet, by the power of Jesus... I get the opportunity to share. And so I want to encourage you to be transparent. Because in the middle of transparency, what happens is God is glorified. He is glorified in my weakness. He is strong. And so this is the Apostle Paul getting to share with them. Now verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And so the first example Paul gives is that he was as a nursing mother. Now understand, while it's a little bit of a weird example, um, if you consider a nursing mother, what she does for the purpose of her child, the way she loves and nourishes her child. The way that in spite of exhaustion and dehydration and all the things that go along with caring for and loving on your child, she will go to any length, even to sacrifice her own body on behalf of her child. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how much he loved the church in Thessalonica. He continues from a nursing mother to then a laboring brother is his next example in verse 9. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not to be a burden to any of you. We preach to you and the, God, the gospel of God. What Paul's saying here, and, and at various times in his career, is that he was a bivocational pastor. He was able to go out and work and support himself and not rely upon the church to support him. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole debate on bivocational ministry, but I will tell you, as a bivocational pastor, I am so thankful that that God has allowed me to be able to work and also have the opportunity to bring you the Word of God. And what it does for a young church is it allows the church to actually grow, to not be burdened with a bunch of financial debt and responsibility. And so this is the apostle Paul wanting to share with the people, wanting to feed sheep rather than fleece the sheep. I bring that up to say that many times in church, people are hurt because of finances that the word gets shared about how we must, we need, give to this program, to this campaign. So much so that in churches, oftentimes, we get the feeling that God is really bad with money. Apparently, Jesus has got a financial problem because he's always needing a little more cash. And the plate gets passed, and the things get mentioned, and the sermons get taught. And over and over again, we get this feeling like we must finance everything because God is broke. And I'm here to share with you that nothing could be further from the truth. God is not broke. He is not in need of your money. He doesn't need you to give. But in fact, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. It's a free will offering that we get to give back. And when you consider what God has actually done for us in our lives, when we get the opportunity to give, it should be joyous. What the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 is this, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word in the Greek for cheerful is also hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. He wants for you to be in such a position with him that as you have the opportunity to give to him, you will be able to go back there to the box and drop in whatever the Lord has put on your heart and go, whoo yeah, do the Ric Flair walk, do the whoo, right? Don't probably do the Ric Flair walk. But my, my point is he wants it to be so joyful that you cannot wait to have the opportunity to give back to him. And, and here's the reality, and this is probably the dumbest thing you're ever going to hear a pastor say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It says a little something about me. If you can't give with that kind of spirit, with that kind of feeling in your heart, don't. Keep it. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart, you see. Now what he knows is, our heart is often tied to our wallet. That's the whole reason he goes down that road. But if it grieves you and you're, you're giving begrudgingly because you feel like you must needs do it, don't bother. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. If he's got some kind of a program or thing he wants paid for, as far as I'm concerned, the Lord will just sell one of those cattle and he'll pay for it. And by the way, I've gotten the opportunity in the two years that we've been doing this to see him do that very thing. That every time a financial need has come up, we don't bring it to the congregation. We bring it to the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And he takes care of it every time. Sometimes it's miraculous. Other times it's with the mundane. But nevertheless, God can take care of his own. And he gives us an opportunity to participate in worship with him. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about giving until the next time it comes up in Scripture. So there you go. Good news about going verse by verse is, if you don't want me to talk about that thing or listen to it, just read ahead. It's really on you for not reading ahead if you didn't want me to talk about it. All right, (laughs) continuing on in verse 10. You are witnesses in God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly uh, we have behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged each and every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so the encouragement here is that we should walk worthy as God is our father. And so now we've been given three examples. First, Paul started with that of a nourishing mother. He then transitioned to a laboring brother. He then moves on to an encouraging father. And in each one of these spots, what I find interesting is you see a different tie or a link to the triune Godhead. That when you think about the unity of God, what he is, is he is a nursing mother. As the Holy Spirit wants to come alongside and comfort us. Never, by the way, have you seen a nursing mother upset with the cries of her children. Never one time does a mother go, man, I wish that kid wouldn't just cry. Just tell him to shut his little pie hole. No. Mothers cannot wait to come alongside and take care of and care for her children. And so the same is true with the Holy Spirit wanting to comfort us. Never annoyed. Uh, as Jesus comes as a laboring brother. What we find is Christ giving his life on our behalf so that he could actually labor alongside us, so he could take our burdens upon himself, take the debt that we could not pay. And then finally, our heavenly father is the one who encourages us, but is also willing to be honest with us. Straightforward, to point out the things that we need to work on. And so be encouraged by that. Now, verse 13 for this reason we also thank god without ceasing because when you received the word of god which you heard from us you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of god which also effectively works in you who believe i have heard it said by people that they like to read the bible because it contains the word of god and i would tell you that from my vantage point i find that statement to be completely and utterly false the bible does not contain the word of god it is the word of god understand the difference because if it just merely contains the word of god that means it also contains things that are not the word of god which leaves it up to the reader to be subjective to decide what parts are god and what parts are not god and it makes you and i all of a sudden the ones that get to decide what is true and what is false. But if it is the word of God, then it is true, completely, holy, from cover to cover. In fact, I'll turn to John chapter 1 verse 1. This is the spot where if you're new to the Bible, I always encourage people to start in the gospel of John and hear the first words that are written. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And if you skip down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of the Word of God. How do we get to know God? By His Word. How do we see Him manifest through the Son? And so there is this tie between the Word and Jesus over and over throughout Scripture. The Word is like any other book in the sense that it is written on pages with chapter and verse in black and white. And yet it is unlike any other book in the fact that it is living and breathing. He is alive alive. And so what we find is through Scripture, John chapter 14, this is what Jesus said speaking of himself, that the word is truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, and I say, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then if you go on to John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus continues and says this, sanctify them. By your truth, your word is truth. He is truth, the word of God is the truth because they are one. I won't go through every one of these references with you, but he, in John chapter eight says that I am the light of the world, Jesus speaking of himself. But then Psalm 119, 105 says, behold, my word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. He is the light of the world. He says in John six that he is the bread of life. But when Jesus is confronted in Matthew chapter 4 by Satan, who wants to trip him up, who wants to stop him in his tracks, here's what Jesus says. He says, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he is the bread of life. And finally, John chapter 5 verse 39. What Jesus goes on to say here is that you search and search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. These scriptures, this word, is the very embodiment of Christ Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, we get an opportunity to learn him because he and the scriptures are one and the same. Now, why did I go through all that? Because these scriptures have the ability to change lives. Jesus has the ability to change lives. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my own life from the inside-out transformation. And there are some weeks that I get the opportunity to sit up here and share with you, and I'll be honest, I think I do a pretty good job some weeks. (laughs) Exhorting the text, going through it, spelling things out in a way that can be understood. And there are some weeks more than I care to count, that I think I do an absolutely terrible job. I mean, I lay some absolute stinkers out there. I don't know how anybody gets anything out of whatever in the world. I just got to share. But here's how I can go home and sleep at night and rest my head, regardless of whether I did a good job or a bad job. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, says this. So my word, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall purpose the thing which I sent it. Whether I do a good job or lay an absolute stinker, the reality is his word will go forth. It will accomplish in your heart exactly what he purposes for it to accomplish. I take great comfort in that and would encourage you to share the word of God with the people around you. Even if you don't get it all exactly correct, it is his word. Now, continuing on as we head down the home stretch. For you, brethren, became imitators of churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. They did not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so as Paul is sharing with them, he is encouraging them as they become imitators of Paul and Silas and other churches in the fact that they are being persecuted. Now, while previously I said maybe the dumbest thing that I've, uh, any pastor could say, I'm now going to say the least encouraging thing you're going to hear. And that is, as a follower of Jesus, you will be persecuted. This is not a might be. This is not a Harry Carey. It could be. It might be. It is. This is, it. it is. You are going to be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. This is what Paul encourages Timothy with. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It may look differently for everybody, but as you press into Jesus... You're probably going to be passed over for that job you were hoping for. That deal you were trying to put together might not come together the way you hoped it would. You might be completely blasphemed by your own family. Friends that you thought were dear to you, they're going to turn their back. They're going to turn away. But here's the promise of God. Matthew chapter 5 verse 12. What Jesus says in the Beatitudes is this. Verse 10, excuse me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A blessing is pronounced as we suffer persecution. But notice with me, it's for righteousness' sake. When I was a kid, we would go every year to the Indy 500. And I remember as we would be walking down Georgetown, there were these street preachers out there on the corner, and they would stand up with signs held high as the people make their way into the race, and they would yell out to people, fornicators, drunks, you're all going to hell. That's what they would proclaim. And as that happened, people would, would uh take beer bottles and they would throw at them, they would throw fists at them, they would throw insults and cursing. At them. And as a kid, I thought, that must be what it looks like to suffer for Jesus. I don't think I could ever be persecuted like that. And it wasn't until much later in life that I realized that they weren't being persecuted, though, for righteousness sake. They were being persecuted because they were annoying. <laughs> they were just weird. And so the encouragement there is... We're not blessed because we're persecuted for being annoying or weird or yelling at people. The, the thing I notice as I think back to that time is that never one time did I see anyone come up to those men who were yelling awful things at people, telling them they were going to hell, Did I see anyone hit their knees and say, tell me more about this Jesus. Tell me more about this one you're speaking of. Because what Romans 2.4 says is that it's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. It's not yelling out all the sins that they already know they've committed. No one turned as a result of that. So the fallout won't look exactly like bottles upside the head. It might if you're suffering for righteousness sake. But often it will look like being passed over, looked past, oppressed, talked about behind your back. Now, if that wasn't encouraging enough, let's continue with verse 17. But we, brethren, having taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, at time and time again, but Satan hindered us. Not only will you be persecuted as you press into Jesus, but you will also make an enemy in Satan. And he is quite the foe, by the way. We can tend to say all kinds of things about him as an enemy, but he is powerful. And he will come against you with fiery darts and all kinds of things. He will pull out every stop because he wants to get you to do one thing, and that is quit. He wants you to stop pressing in. He wants you to turn the other way because it would be so much easier if you did. But what 1 John 4, verse 4 says is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And so the encouragement in this is that we are to quiet our flesh and not quit. As you press in, that will be the thing that goes in your head. It would be so much easier. I wouldn't be persecuted. I wouldn't have Satan come up against me. I'm just going to stop. So in light of all this, why in the world will we continue? Verse 19. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In light of being persecuted, in light of having Satan come up against the Apostle Paul, his response to why would we keep pushing why would we keep pressing in was this, because there is no greater joy than seeing a life transformed. If you have ever had the opportunity to lead someone to Jesus, I am going to repeat that. There is no greater joy than seeing a life transformed. No different than a mother giving birth, all the pain, all the agony, how quickly it all goes away when she holds the child in her arms. That's what it looks like and tenfold to see someone reborn spiritually, to see someone come to new life. And if that wasn't enough, that joy wasn't enough, what is on top of that, what Paul says is that you will receive the crown of rejoicing from our Lord, and Je- Lord Jesus. Five different times in the New Testament, crowns are mentioned. And I know what some of you are going to say, that I'm not working for a crown. But I got to tell you, I'm not working for a crown either. But if Jesus is going to give me one, I am not going to stand in his presence and say, no, thank you, sir. I'm going to say, bring it on. May I have another? I want to have a big old whopper, a big old pile of crowns. In fact, I want it to be so embarrassing that when you all arrive in heaven, you're going to ask, where would Pastor Brock go? I don't see him around here. Did he not make it? Maybe he didn't make it. No, he's over there under that pile of crowns. I see his arm up there waving at us, right? Like who wouldn't want a big old pile of crowns from Jesus? And so here's what Paul is trying to share, is that the only thing we can take with us for all of eternity is souls. It's people. That's how important, that's how Valuable people are. And as he's writing this letter, imagine this he's writing a letter to a church in this wicked city of Thessalonica to a whole group of people who now have eternal life. These people were lost. Paul had to suffer beatings and persecutions and jailings and feet being put in stocks, being stoned nearly to death. And yet, these people, as a result of him persevering, they are saved. For all of eternity, it pales in comparison, light and momentary affliction compared to the weight of the glory that he has in store for us. In fact, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 15 is that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Imagine that kind of party and leading just one person to the Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. And we praise you for encouragement from the Apostle Paul. Lord, in this room right now, there are some of us going through persecution and affliction. And frankly, Lord, it'd be a whole lot easier to just quit. Father, would you please come alongside and bear burdens and nurse them back to health and strength and encourage them to keep going Lord there are people that we have prayed for for months and weeks and years and we begin to wonder is it all just a waste of time Lord would you encourage us that it is not that someday there will be a crown of rejoicing that the host of heaven will be there together rejoicing when just one sinner repents Lord help us to just have a a little glimpse into what that looks like. Father, we ask for these things. We praise you for these truths. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.